Radio Mano Papachango. Chris, Ben here. You hear all that? If you can, it's the sound of the Amazon jungle at night. I'm sitting out here looking over this small pond. There are water lilies blooming on it, just like they do every night, white against the darkness. Uh, I'm here at uh, this ayahuasca center in the jungle. I've been here for almost six weeks now, and tomorrow will be my final ceremony of 17. I've been listening to you since before you had an actual podcast. Uh, it was actually your first podcast where you came onto Trussell's, where I found you. But since then, I've been with you in Oregon, in Chiang Mai, in Topanga, in Holland, and of course in the van. And you've been with me in Prague, <clears throat> and in Buenos Aires, on trains in Stockholm, and trails in Washington State, and buses across Paraguay, uh, and on my flight here. I'm super grateful to have you and all of the tangentially speaking community with me on, on my various journeys. But uh, until now, I've always been afraid to send you an intro. I was always afraid you'd recognize my name or my voice, because four years ago, you generously agreed to let me interview you for this article that I was writing about psychedelic medicine and podcasts. And at that point, I'd, I'd barely written any articles or had any published. They were all music journalism. And uh, even though I got great interviews from you and Duncan and Daniele Bellelli and others, I did lots of research. No editor wanted to take a chance on it. I've always uh, viewed that experience as a, as a failure. When, when I interviewed you at uh, this cafe in Topanga, we talked about podcasts and psychedelics, but we didn't talk about the fact that at the time I was pretty sick. Uh, I was sick with this physical problem that uh, at the point we spoke had, had already kept me stuck in Los Angeles and uh, away from being on the road where I belong, uh, where so many of us tangentially speakers belong. I always felt pretty guilty for wasting your time after you were so generous with it and pretty ashamed about not ever finishing that article or getting it published. Like I said, it, it looked like a big failure in my life. But um, it was while researching that article uh, that never made it that I found that I ever, ever first even thought of using ayahuasca as a treatment for, for myself, for the thing that I was dealing with. Uh, I ended up going to this center three years ago and, and it fixed this physical problem that no doctors in Los Angeles could. I went to probably nine of them. Uh, so I just wanted to say for anyone else in our community that needs to hear it right now, that article that I've always seen as a failure, it, it, it saved my life in more ways than one. Uh, and that's what, that's what happened the first time I came to this place. Uh, and after, lots of shit in my life got way better, and then it got way worse. I ended up with more physical problems, more mental problems, 
but I found my way back here. And now that, that first failure that led me here, it, it didn't just save my life, it's, it's, uh, it's given me the tools to build a new one. Or to at least start. So, I wanted to thank you for that and for everything that you've given me over the years. I love you, man. And I love all of you guys. Well, that made my fucking day. Ben, thank you so much for that. Um, of course, <clears throat> there was no need to, to worry about it, man. Uh, honestly, I can't tell you how many documentary filmmakers I have um, sat in front of and, and uh, you know, combed my hair and washed my face and put on a nice shirt and sat there for two, three hours, interviews, and the film never comes out. I uh, never hear from them again. Uh, lots of articles. I remember The Sun magazine shortly after Sex of Dawn came out sent this journalist to interview me. And uh, it was going to be a huge article. It was, um, the dude probably spent three days hanging around. And he came to where I was at my parents' house in L.A. And we we must have spent seven, eight hours talking. And he's taking all these notes. And he wrote everything up. And he showed it all to me. And, um, and then the magazine spiked it. They killed it. And he was heartbroken. Uh, I felt really bad for the guy. Uh, you know, as I should have, because, you know, he got paid a, a kill fee, but he didn't get paid what he was supposed to be paid. I don't know if I was not interesting enough or they decided the story was too provocative or what, but he was a really good writer and great interviewer. Anyway, my point is that it's not a waste of time if you spend... Uh, an hour or two talking with somebody who's interesting and sincere and uh, you clearly are and I'm sure you were although I don't remember that particular afternoon um, and it's uh, amazing how we find light in darkness so often um, I don't want to start throwing around too many cliches here but it really is amazing how you never know what uh, doors are going to open for you. You never know what lies on the other side of the next step you're about to take. You know, in, in my own personal experience, probably one of the more emblematic, uh, symbolic situations like that was when I got robbed that first night in Barcelona. And then uh, while I was waiting for my papers to come through and, you know, whatever it was that I needed before I continued my journey. Uh, I met my old friend, now my old friend Marcos, and Marcos decided to show me around and introduce me to people. And next thing you know, someone offered me a job and a place to stay. And uh, I met some women who seemed pretty interesting. And I was like, well, maybe I'll stick around Barcelona for a few months see how this thing pans out because aside from robbing me the city seems to be opening its arms to me and uh inviting me to stay a while so i did and 20 years later that was the city i have spent the most amount of time in in my entire life 
Who the fuck knows is my point. Nobody. This episode is with a really special person. Um, her name is Tracy Clark Flory. I first met Tracy uh, after Sex at Dawn came out. She, I guess she had written an article about the book or she called me and interviewed me or something. At the time, she was the sex writer for Salon.com. And, uh, you know, back in 2011, 2012, somewhere in there, Salon was a website that I, I frequented. They were doing some really interesting things. Um, they had a lot of smart writers on staff. Um, the editorial focus was edgy and interesting and smart and, and really uh, substantial. Uh, I'm sorry to say that at this point, I really don't look at Salon anymore. It seems to have been taken over by shouty, scoldy, cancel culture dipshits. Um, but back in the day, it was interesting. I, Salon and Slate were the two uh, journalism websites that I read in those days. And Slate at this point, it's it's like just fucking nonsense. It's It's strange to watch these things peak and then collapse so quickly. Um, but anyway, uh, I really liked Tracy. I liked her questions. I liked, I think we talked on the phone. I don't know. But uh, then when I started the podcast, she was one of the first people I interviewed. She, I think she's episode six or something. If you, if you go in the archives, definitely one of the first 10 episodes. Um, and so let's see, when would that have been? If I, I think I started the podcast about eight years ago, 2012, 13, something like that. And um, yeah, so she was living in San Francisco in the Mission District. And um, I remember we recorded at her apartment. And uh, I thought she was interesting. I remember there was, uh, we talked about Neil Strauss at the time. Um, because I had just met him, I think. And she mentioned something about the game and how she had gone out with a dude who had the copy, a copy of the game on his like bedside table or something. <laughs> and, and, uh, anyway, all this is to say, I met her, I did the podcast with her. I really liked her. And, um, now she's written a memoir about, those years, uh, in, including those years. And having read the memoir, I know her so much better. I have such a more detailed and intimate understanding of what was going on in her life than I did sitting across from her, sitting across that table from her in the room with her. Uh, the book is called Want Me. And I cannot recommend this book enough. You'll hear me telling Tracy how moved I am by the book, how impressed I am by her writing, and uh, I was not blowing smoke up her ass. This is a really brave, beautiful piece of work by a brave and beautiful woman. Um, and when I say beautiful, you'll understand I'm not talking about surface beauty. I'm talking about someone who 
um, not only feels things uh, at in such detail and at such depth, but has the language to express it and the courage to share it. Um, I recommend this book to everybody. Uh, if you're a woman, you will find a kindred sister in that book um, who says things that you may have thought or felt, uh, but were afraid to say out loud. If you're a man, you will gain insights into the experience of women, um, and particularly this woman, um, that you would not have been able to gain any other way. Uh, I've had very intimate relationships with women over the years, and they've I've been blessed to have um, them confide in me and share things with me, and you know have very uh, intimate conversations. Um, and that's what this book feels like. It feels like uh, someone who trusts you so much that she's willing to really let you know what it's like to be her. Um, yeah, fascinating book. Very much about uh, her sexuality, her sort of learning to be a woman, her understanding of her own desires in the context of male desire, or at least what she imagines to be male desire, um, and just trying to figure find her way through the hall of mirrors that is sexuality in the 21st century America. It's uh, fascinating, really. I can't uh, recommend it enough. Want Me by Tracy Clark Flory. All right, I'm going to leave it there. I do want to play you out with a song that uh, feeds into this theme of finding light in darkness. Um, which is a theme that runs through Tracy's book and certainly a theme that was introduced by Ben in that uh, initial uh, intro there about uh, failure and success and healing and desperation and community and solitude and, and all those things. Um, I saw a video a while ago. I was just uh, rooting around on YouTube as... I tend to do sometimes, and this video came up, and it was by a guy named Sherman Kelly. It was a YouTube video, and I will put a link to it um, in the show notes, but, uh, you know, if you don't happen to go there, just just look up a video on YouTube of Sherman Kelly. He is the man who wrote this song that I'm about to play you. This is a song that was very popular back in the day, in the 70s, I guess. Uh, he wrote the song in 1969, and it became, uh, it was released in 1970 and uh, by a band called King Harvest. And it was one of these one-hit wonders. I don't know if they ever had another hit, but this was a big hit. Uh, the song is called Dancing in the Moonlight. And you've heard the song, if you ever listen to classic rock radio. Uh, it was released in 1972. It hit number 13 on the Billboard Hot 100. So it was a big, 
you know, presence on the radio. And this song was just, you know, my whole life, this song has been just the sort of expression of cool, of just how happy and easy life can be. Dancing in the moonlight. Everybody's feeling all right. It's such a fine and natural sight. Everybody dancing in the moonlight. I saw this video and he's talking about the origins of the song. The origin of the song is that in 1969, he was on a trip to San Croix. And he and his friends were on a sailboat. And that night, the the water was kind of choppy. And his girlfriend felt like she would be sick if they slept on the boat. So they said, okay, let's just take the dinghy in and we'll sleep on the beach. So he and his girlfriend went and they fell asleep on the beach. Beautiful. Under the stars. He woke up being beaten by a gang who eventually murdered eight American tourists. They beat him and his girlfriend, broke his face, multiple facial fractures, um, and raped her. And he was unconscious. Somehow he came to consciousness, saw what was happening, and just charged them. He must have looked like a monster with his face broken and blood everywhere and teeth falling out. And I guess he was grotesque enough that he scared them and they ran away. Uh, In the video, he says that his girlfriend was okay. She recovered, had a good life. He had multiple surgeries on his face. Um... And he was recovering at his friend's house uh, in uh, Ithaca, New York, <coughs> a place I've spent a fair bit of time at. And he was so full of anger and despair and sadness and regret. And he, to keep his shit together, he kind of tried to fantasize about an alternative reality where peace and joy and celebration of life was what was happening. And people loved each other and took care of each other. Just the opposite of what he had experienced. He and his girlfriend had experienced in St. Croix. And he sat down at his friend's piano and this song came out of him. Dancing in the Moonlight, King Harvest, written by Sherman Kelly. Dancing 
Tracy Clark Flory, who I believe, I don't remember exactly which episode it was, but I think you were one of the first 10 episodes of this podcast that I recorded way back in 1846. Uh, <laughs> um, yeah, it's amazing. I remember Sexaton had just come out, I think, or you wrote a review or something yeah. in Salon. Is that how we met each other? I, that sounds about right. Yeah, it was a long. It feels like a long time ago. Yeah, a long time ago. I mean, I think I've done this podcast for about eight years or so, and so wow. you were right there at the beginning. Uh, this I just uploaded episode four hundred and fifty something. Oh my! Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So. And that's just four hundred and fifty different people, for the most part, that you've talked to. I would yeah. imagine not repeat appearances. That's a lot of. It's people. It's a lot of people. Yeah. Yeah. Jeez. It's, it's been great. I I had no idea it was gonna like become my central focus. Um, <clears throat> but thanks to people like you, it got off the ground and it's still flying. So, thanks for coming back. So great. Yeah, I'm happy to. A few things have changed in your life. Yes, I wrote a book. I had a baby. <laughs> those, are the, those are the main things that have happened in the intervening in, years. In, you know, I've written two books, and I often uh, compare writing a book to having a baby, but I've never had a baby. So maybe you can yeah. flesh out that comparison a little. Is that a valid... Uh, I, I, yeah, I think it's an apt comparison. I think the, like... The, the many months of gestation, I think it takes longer to gestate a book, mm. I would say. <laughs> On average, it depends. Some people are quick. Um, but yeah, and then, and then this sense of like sending this, this thing that you've created off into the world. <laughs> right. And um, letting go is, you know, I, I, think, I think there's a definite comparison. Yeah, there. the sequence of like extreme attention and care 
followed Intimacy. by surrender. Yeah. yeah. Surrender and separation. Yeah. I mean, that's to me, that's the, the wild, the wildest thing about writing a book is like, for me, at least it was like this intense immersion in the project and just like sitting with it in this very private way and then opening it up to the world to, to consume and have opinions about and react to. And yeah, what an experience. And in your case, it's particularly intimate because what you wrote about was so intimate. Um, yeah. So uh, confession time for me, I, you know, I'm, I'm recording uh, five or six episodes a week right now um, because I'm about to go spend the summer in my van. So I'm, sucking up all the Wi-Fi connectivity I have here in the last couple of months. <laughs> um, so I, I'm interviewing a lot of authors and I'm not reading their books. I had, there's no way I'm going to read five or six books a week. And um, so last night you sent me a copy of your book and I had it on my desktop and I forgot to look at it. And I looked at my calendar last night and I was like, oh my God, I'm talking to Tracy tomorrow morning. Oh shit. And I opened the PDF and I thought, well, I'll just sort of scan it and get a general sense. And I started reading at the beginning and I finally went to bed at 1 a.m. because <laughs> I had to do this with you and I wanted to get enough sleep. But I read half the book, you know, nice. um, so I'm not going to lie and pretend I read the whole book, but I am going to say that I read enough of it to know that I'm going to read the rest. And it's beautiful it's really beautifully thank you and you are a, a really really good writer and there's something about thank you so much and there's something about the combination of of just really good writing i just the 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 way you shape language and your humor and the surprising twists and the 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 accuracy of your memory i'm assuming it's accurate i don't care if it's accurate it seems accurate which is the most important it feels thing yeah accurate. <laughs> you know the excerpts right, from right. like text messages that you were sending back and forth with you know some guy you were seeing and excerpts from your journal and conversations with your parents and like their your attention to detail just makes it so um engaging and then you combine that with the real courage that it takes to write about your intimacy, your your sexual awakening, your relationships with your parents, your um, you know, you're you're talking about things that a lot of people would never say out loud, and you're saying them not only out loud but you know in a stadium full of strangers. <laughs> right, right, right. Um, well, thank you for that. But yeah, I mean. It's so funny sitting down at your computer and writing a book like this and then and of course, you know that it's going to be published like that. The aim is to share this with other people, but there's definitely a gap there where and for me, that gap was closed when I recorded the audio mm. for the book. And I went and I actually sat in a studio with two strangers, a, a director and a sound engineer and read my book aloud to them over the course of a week. And like that was that was when it really hit me <laughs> that yeah. other people were going to be consuming this, you know, the intimacy of being in the sound booth where they can like hear every little sound and the just um that's when it you know, and that was kind of terrifying to to really face face the reality of um 
how much I would be giving this up and over to other people. And then it would in some ways not be mine anymore. Yeah. That it would be out there in the world. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, There's something about telling a story about ourselves that sort of externalizes something that until we tell the story was totally internal. Yeah. Well, and I've had the experience of like very good friends of mine who have read the book and have learned things about me that they just didn't know because it's just never come up in conversation. Mm. So it's just the, the sort of level of intimacy with a memoir um, is it's just kind of unparalleled and it's very, because these are people that I've had great intimacy with. I've shared all sorts of, you know, aspects of myself with these people. And yet there are just things that you don't, that don't come up in day-to-day conversation and friendship that, that, um, you know, you reveal in a memoir. And so it's, it's, um, it's, it's an interesting new form of intimacy, intimacy to experience with strangers and friends alike. (laughs) Did you find, <clears throat> any sort of um, increased intimacy with yourself as you were writing? Yeah. Um, I mean, there was a lot, there was obviously so much self-reflection um, and there was the digging through, like you mentioned the, I had this um, AOL instant messenger conversation with my high school boyfriend that I'd actually printed out at the time and preserved in my journal, which was how I could include it in the book (laughs) all these decades later. Um, And so revisiting that stuff, like I think especially revisiting um, all of these artifacts from high school and even from my early 20s, um, there was this sense of intimacy with myself and a sort of like a, a revisiting with that younger self. Um, and sort of experiencing compassion for her um, from this more adult removed distance where I'm in a very different place in my life. I'm married, I have a kid, you know. Um, and so that is a really bizarre experience to kind of, um, to, to feel like you're communing with a, like a, an earlier version of yourself. Um, so yeah, def- definitely, definitely. Do you think you'll ever be as far away from your current self as you are now from her? Right. Yeah. I mean, you have to wonder because (laughs) I know that as a younger person, I, I definitely thought that, you know, when I was in middle school, high school, I thought like I'll arrive at the age of, you know, 25 or 30 and I'll be an adult and I'll have it all figured out. And, you know, um, it's really easy to look down the, the line and, and imagine that, um, you know, you just that you arrive at some sort of um, <laughs> stable, consistent a- adult place. And so far, that has not been my experience. And so my expectation is that things will continue <clears throat> shifting and changing yeah. um, and that I'll continue surprising myself over the course of my life. So <laughs> how old are you? Probably. I'm 37 yeah, now. Okay. I just turned 59 and uh, I don't know if this is, this will be good news or bad news to you, but I feel like, like there is an arrival, like there is a a point you get Mm. to where you um, sort of, you know, move into the house you're going to grow old in. 
and then you just mm-hmm. rearrange furniture and maybe you know make an addition or you know fix the roof but that's your house you're you're yeah. you now and you just get older but you're still you're just an older version of you whereas between right. you know 16 to 28 it's like no that's a whole different person like it's you can see yeah. the you can see things the acorns that later become oaks but uh, they're not trees yet. They're definitely, <laughs> right. yeah, it's right. It's interesting. I, I listen, reading your, your book last night, I was reminded of, uh, I don't remember who said this, but some, some writer said you should always write posthumously, always write as if you're dead, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, and Right. Because sometimes I think about trying to write a memoir and and that would be the only uh, that would be like the main reason I would be interested in doing it is to see how how revealing I can be like to, yeah. to how honest can I be? Um, right. And that feels almost like a like a Zen exercise or something, you know, an exercise mm-hmm. in nakedness and shamelessness. And, you right. know, did you, did you feel yep. that? Were you doing some sort of a spiritual discipline as you were writing? <laughs> I mean, I, when you say shamelessness, that really resonates for me because I think, um, that's for a long time has been something I've aspired toward and, and have never, achieved. Um, I've never actually achieved a state of shamelessness and, and having, you know, no relationship to shame. Of, of course not. Um, is that possible? I don't know, but, but reaching for that has, has long been sort of a value of mine. Um, and I value so much that kind of, that kind of naked, honest, you know, um, revealing writing, because I know how much, um, how much it means for me and how much it can mean for for readers i mean i've had that experience of encountering people who are willing to put it all on the page and what that meant for me in terms of just the validation in finding someone who's sharing similar thoughts and experiences that you thought were only your own and all of that um so there was definitely in the writing process there was that that i think i had to delude myself to a certain degree um and and hold that value of shamelessness and and to just to write as honestly as I could without thinking about how will this per- be perceived? What will it be like to go, you know, get together with my family for Thanksgiving after everyone's mm, read the book? Yeah, <laughs> um, which is, you know, and now I have to I have to face that. So, like, I feel like the, the self who wrote the book <laughs> has now delivered this sort of dilemma for my current self, which is like, OK, well, um, everyone's read the book, it's out there and you have to sort of deal with incorporating that into your life. Um, that, you know, because in a lot of ways it, it doesn't, it doesn't feel so scary, um, in the abstract revealing it to an, an anonymous reader, but it's more so, um, a lot of the stuff that's in the book, you don't share that level of detail and intimacy with family members. Right with friends sure. even. And so, you know, it, there is something very bizarre about incorporating that. And a, a lot of the story, at least in the beginning chapters, um, is sort of about how you were 
not as intimate with people as you were pretending to be. So it's interesting now there's this sort of, I don't know if it's, I don't know what the word for it is. There's like a balance to it. There's, you know, here you are being incredibly intimate with strangers about the fact that it was difficult for you to be intimate with lovers, you know, and with yourself yeah. in some yeah. ways. Yeah. Is it is there a healing process in all of this? Is there a, like a therapeutic uh, value to this? Yeah, there is. And, you know, that was um, pretty unexpected. Like, I feel um, I mean, I don't know how to say this in a way that's not totally corny, but I feel there is this sort of liberating um, aspect to it where I feel like I put it all on the table. It's all out there. Um, I've sort of confronted, you know, I think all along in the book, I, I, I have this fear of, um, of, of intimacy, of revealing myself, of, you know, in a lot of cases, especially in the realm of sex, of like being too much or too much to handle. Or, um, and so I think like sort of coming out in this way with this book feels, um, I feel re very released from all of that, you know? Um, and so, it, so I feel fully incorporated in the sense that like, there isn't, um, this at this part of myself that I'm, that I'm hiding or concealing or need to sort of protect. Um, it feels, it feels like it's just, it's all out there. Yeah. How do you, how did you negotiate the opposing appetite for revelation and, and this sort of um, search for shamelessness and discretion. I mean, you're married, mm -hmm. you have a child, you know, there are certain things uh, about your parents that maybe you were tempted to share, but felt, well, is this really fair to them? You know, um, right. how, how do yeah. you work through that stuff? Did you talk yeah. with your husband about it as you were writing or did you just write it all and say read it and tell me what you think or is it like <laughs> deal with it i'm a writer <laughs> you know you knew that going in or like how do you how do you do that <laughs> you knew what you were getting into um yeah i mean in terms of my husband like he's he's the person i've he understood this book from the start better than anyone um He's, I've, I have not talked to anyone more about this book, like from the earliest days of the idea. And so he's so intimately familiar with all of the themes and, you know, the whole arc of the book um, and has like been the strongest champion of it. And so for that, I feel really lucky, um, you know, in terms he's pretty. I actually met him when I as a, when I was um, we worked together at Salon um, and so he knew very much like what my whole deal was um, <laughs> when he got into the relationship. I'm dating a sex me. columnist, um, yeah. <laughs> right? <laughs> Which he had apprehensions about, but but he he knew, um, and you know is 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 fine with it. And so there wasn't a lot of negotiation. Um, he's pretty comfortable even with me, you know, revealing stuff as it relates to him. Mm. Um, 
but I had my own sort of sense of um, it's interesting, like what I came up against where I felt like, nope, that's a that's a hard boundary. The reader doesn't get to see that. And that was with my son. Um, I don't name my son in the book. I and it's just I couldn't even bring myself to use an initial like it, it just felt like that was one just hard boundary for me where I felt so protective of my kid where it um, I talk about him I talk about sort of my but it's more so my experience um, stepping into motherhood right. but my child so off limits and so deserving of his, like his own story in this way that like I feel fiercely protective and so that was like one interesting area where you know so much else feels totally game, you know, and up for grabs, but, but not, not that. Um, and then luckily, like my dad is, um, remarkably okay with me writing about like finding his porn as a teenager. And, you know, like he, there was no, I, sh I showed him all of the sections, um, in the book that featured him before it published and, um, gave him an opportunity to speak up if anything was, you know, cross boundaries for him and it didn't. So, um, you know, luckily, um, I guess I have, my family is pretty, um, supportive and, and pretty okay with being, um, featured in the book. So, so far, yeah. so far, <laughs> I mean, right. you haven't had that first are, Thanksgiving you know, dinner yet. <clears throat> Post publication. Yeah, right? I mean, I, I know, you know, some folks have told me already that it was challenging to read the book or that, you know, they felt like it was too much information and they had to kind of put it down and it took them a while to get through it. Um, so, you know, I think it's uh, it's challenging for some folks to yeah. read. Yeah, I shortly after, you know, in the experience of having published Sex at Dawn, I became surprisingly relaxed about uh, my friends and family not reading it like it, it was almost mm. like you know I, I and I, I I'm still this way it's like you read a book when it's the right time to read it and if you force it true that's not good for anyone you shouldn't read it out of right. obligation to me um, you don't need yeah. to pretend you've read it if you haven't. It's cool. You know, lots right. of people. Yeah, it, that's you know, it's not like this isn't a personal thing. As you said, you send it out into the world and it has its own life out there. Um, yeah. You mentioned your son. Did you? Well, I know you did. So let me just say, uh, what was it like as you were writing and you imagine your son 20 years from now? sitting <laughs> yeah. down and reading about mom. I don't know. The level of detail and intimacy in this book is way, way, way more than I know about my mother's sexual awakening, assuming she's ever yeah. awakened. Um, <laughs> you know, I mean, it could right. be happening now right. for all I know. <laughs> what what right. was that like? Because in a way, you yeah. know, you're protecting his autonomy and yet by... By saying this, you you are taking a part of his life and making it public, even though you never name him, right? His mom yeah. is a big part of his life. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he that there's no protecting him from that. 
there's no protecting him from the fact that I've written this book, that there are like approximately 20 copies of this book in our house, you know, that he, he, he knows, he recognizes the cover. He's, he's three and a half now. So he sees the cover and he can say, oh, that's mama's book, you know, um, so he has already a relationship to it. Obviously, he's not able to read it and probably will, you know, I don't know if he'll ever read it, for one. Um, I actually, I, you know, I have author friends um, who've written books in the realm of sex that are not personal. And even then, they're like teenagers are like, oh, God, I don't want to read your book, Mom. <laughs> yeah, um, <laughs> exactly. Like, I'm not, I refuse to read your book. Um, and so I, I would... I would imagine that that would probably be his relationship to that book. And, you know, I think it's something that I will be open with him about. You know, I'll, I'll be open with what the book is about. And I will also, um, you know, past a certain age, it's up to him whether he would want to read it. You know, I don't know that I, I mean, I think if I was talking about my mom, I think, probably I would reach a point, I would have reached a point in my twenties where I might've been ready to read that kind of book from my yeah. mom. But, um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, um, it's, <laughs> I've definitely thought about what does it mean for a boy to grow up with a mom who is out there in this way publicly. Yeah. Um, and you know, <laughs> It's easy to worry about. It's easy to like, oh God, like what if his like middle school friends <laughs> discover right. like his mom's writing on the internet and sort of, you know, bring it to school or whatever. But um, mostly I try to focus on the positive, which is that, you know, I'm, I'm really eager to have the kind of relationship with my kid, um, you know, over the course of his childhood and teenage years where we can talk openly about sex in a healthy and age appropriate way. And, and that I can try to sort of correct some of, um, you know, some of the, <laughs> some of the emissions that, you know, from my childhood growing up with my parents and, you know, yeah. um, I think hopefully, hopefully that's, that's a positive to have, um, two parents really who are comfortable with the subject. Matter. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. You know, I, I, um, I get a lot of people who send me, uh, who want to come on the podcast because they've written a book, uh, a memoir in their thirties or twenties, even sometimes. And it's, a, it's always a very difficult thing for me because like you, I sort of always thought of myself as a writer and when I was in my 20s and 30s, I was traveling around, backpacking around the world. And lots of times people would say, oh, you should write a book, man. You know, that's a great story. You should write a book. And I was tempted to, but I I never did. And the reason I, I never did was I, partly just sort of a self-protective habit of laziness, I think. And <laughs> But that was combined with... Um, sort of an instinctive sense that it would be a bad move because I would be doing it out of ego. That my reason for writing the book would be, look how good, I, how good, look how good I can write. Uh, <laughs> look, you know, like to because I wanted the attention, or I thought I was going to get famous, or you know, whatever it was. And so I always mm -hmm. my answer was like, look, 
you know, just because you're tall doesn't mean you should play basketball. Just because you're a good writer doesn't mean you should write. And I get these people now sending me their memoirs and and I don't know how to respond to them because what I want to say to them is like, hey, it's cool that you're 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 writing. That's good. And, and it's good to practice and all that. But I don't really give a shit about a memoir from someone who's 32 years old. Like, go live your fucking life mm-hmm. and then write a memoir. Go, you know, it's like mm-hmm. backpacking in Peru does not, that's not a reason to write a book. <laughs> so right. this is all a very long-winded way of saying, I didn't feel that at all reading yours. I didn't feel that there was um, any kind of like ego drive in it. And I guess that's because of how ruthless you were that you you know what i mean you don't reveal mm-hmm. um you don't reveal things about yourself that that are really hard to say if you're writing out of ego so, right. so you pulled it off right. you are a young person who wrote a memoir who <laughs> isn't writing out of ego at least as far as i can tell thank you well, I'm, I'm glad I'm glad that it at least seems that way. I mean, I think that there is something to that and that there's a lot in this book that I'm I do not feel good about, yeah. you know, like I don't feel like there are many moments in this book where I'm embarrassed by it. I'm horrified, um, you know, and ta- speaking of shame, there's like the shame that came up when writing, uh, you know, scenes in the book where I am. Um, and it has nothing to do with sex, really. It's it's not sexual shame, but it's shame around, you know, um, like the ignorance of, uh, you know, of my early 20s and that sort of thing where, um, you know, certainly I would not write those scenes if, if it was coming from a place of like wanting to look good right. um, or wanting to come off as like as though I've always had it figured out, um, you know, and actually I. I set out to write this book and did not think I was writing a memoir initially and was like horrified at the realization that I was writing a memoir. <laughs> really? I found that so embarrassing. What an embarrassing thing to be writing a memoir. <laughs> at like, 35 oh, or whatever you were. Jesus, yeah. give me a break. Yeah. Exactly. I mean, it was like, I, you know, <laughs> look at all the eye rolls for that idea. Um, but that, but it just was like, it was so obviously the book that I was writing. Like I thought I was writing a book about straight men's desire and then it became so clear that I was like a journalistic book and then it became so clear that it was about me and my relationship in many ways to to men's desire Mm -hmm. and there just was no escaping the reality of like what like where the um the excitement was for me like what like it was and and where I had like all the energy and heat. It was just, it was actually about me and my relationship to men and to male desire and to sex. And, and I just, you know, yeah, I had to admit it. It's a memoir. (laughs) Deal with it. That's interesting. (laughs) I was going to ask you about the moment of conception of the book. Like, uh, did you wake up in the middle of the night saying, okay, I'm going to write a memoir, but it's, it sounds like you were doing something totally different and it became it it insisted on being a memoir that's interesting it insisted it insisted yeah Yeah. basically what happened with the book was i was laid off from my job while eight months pregnant and i'd been wanting to write a book this book theoretically um 
for a long time. And, and then that was just sort of this opportunity where I was about to have a baby and, you know, um, you have a maternity leave, um, and okay, time to work on a book proposal. And that's when I started digging into it and realized that, yeah, it's not, it was, it was not a book about male desire. It was a memoir. And yet still about male desire largely because so yeah. much of your own sexual awakening seems to be, and I think you say this explicitly in the book, sort of figuring out what men want and then shaping yourself around that somehow. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and I was thinking about that and, and I was thinking about, is there, did I experience the opposite of that or the, the, you know, the mirror image of that? Because when I was young, I was very, um, very interested in women's sexuality, how it works. Um, I mean, I've told this story on the podcast before when I was 15 years old, I had a, like a lock box. Um, it was, I remember I bought it at a, like a, a stationary supply kind of place, you know, and it was one of those boxes that was fireproof and you could like put your important documents in it and stuff. And it had a key lock. And that's where mm -hmm. I kept all the sex toys that I had. Uh, I had vibrators and French ticklers and ribbed condoms and <laughs> anal beads and, you know, whatever I could get my hands on. And this was the you know late 70s. Uh, so it wasn't like you could just go on Amazon and order all this stuff. Um, right. Because my first girlfriend, my first sexual relationship, like she would have orgasms when I went down on her, but she didn't have orgasms when we fucked. And so I was like, okay, I wasn't threatened by it at all. I was just like, Hmm, how does this work? Like, you know, and I'd read, you know, the clitoris is here and the G spots here. And like, do you have a G spot? Like, let's mm -hmm. find it. Let's figure. So it was, for me, it was like a science experiment. And luckily she uh, was chill yeah. and she's like, all right, you know, explore. I don't care. Um, and so I was very interested. And then later I realized, or at least I came to the conclusion that women's sexual response really isn't about their bodies so much. It's about their <laughs> minds. It's getting into their uh -huh. fantasy life and, you know, mm -hmm. the, the forbidden areas and, and, and creating um, a space where a woman feels free to tell you what really works for her or what she imagines when she comes, when she's alone. And like, that's, Mm -hmm. where you find a woman. So I, I don't know, this, this isn't really a question, I guess, but I'm, I'm sort of like, is, is male, because the way you describe male sexual desire, it's pretty simple. Like you say at one point, yeah. like you go to these web, these um, porn sites and it's like, okay, this is what men want. This is it. Yeah, uh, fantasy right. is just an expression of hunger and this is these are the shapes of male hunger is there an equivalent yeah. with women is there like is there female desire per se i mean god well first of all like the perception that i took to porn sites like tube sites especially where you know i had this very literal interpretation like okay this video is the most viewed and top rated um video on uges which was like the tube site of the time 
So this still exists, was, by the way. Be... <laughs> oh, I, I, as okay. I was reading Great. last night, I was like, you just never heard of that. I went and looked at it. It's <laughs> is still there. Is that there. a real site? <laughs> it really sounds like something someone would, a, a name someone would make up to, yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, I interpreted the top site, the top video on that site as like, this is, this is what men want. This must be because it's what everyone's liking and watching. And so I had, um, you know, no sort of nuanced understanding of fantasy and how fantasy right. works, right? Um, and just had this very little interpret literal interpretation of fantasy, which I don't think that fantasy can be interpreted very literally. I mean, rarely can it be. Oftentimes, fantasies have like the opposite meaning that they seem to have. Like, it's just this really complex realm that I was so ill-equipped to, you know, interpret. Um, and yeah, I think I had a very simplistic um, idea of quote unquote straight male desire. Um, you know, I don't, there is no straight male desire. There is just, you know, desire, like a, a multitude of desires, you know, and I, but I aspired to this idea that like, and that we're sold, of course, that men, that, that men's desire can be very easily, um, categorized and, and sort of labeled and, that it's simplistic and, you know, one dimensional and unemotional and, you know, all of these things that, um, certainly like working as a, as a journalist writing about sex, um, that definitely corrected a lot of those misconceptions. Um, but in terms of there being an equivalent for women's desire, I mean, I think, you know, really what we're talking about are like, what, what are the sort of like mainstream representations of desire? Like, how do we interpret desire? Because, um, I don't think that tube sites are an accurate reflection of, of male desire. They're an accurate reflection of one aspect, right. Um, of fantasy. And so I don't know what the equivalent would be for women. I mean, I just finished writing an article about, um, men on TikTok who are making videos like what I called romantic thirst traps for specifically for straight women. And they're um, really working with these like very, <laughs> you know, tired um, stereotypes of what women want around like this sort of juxtaposition of like strength and softness. So you have, um, you know, men who are like cooking and doing the dishes, but are also chopping wood. And like, you know, it's very reminiscent of that, um, joke book that came out, I think in 2007 called porn for women, mm -hmm. which was just all like photos of shirtless hunks, like vacuuming, um, which I always found like such an insulting representation to whom? of female desire. Oh, to women, okay. <laughs> In insulting to women, I mean, and probably also to men. <laughs> probably everyone's insulted by that, really. But um, so, yeah, I think, I mean, my main, like, the main thing I think I learned on my journey as a sex writer is that we are all sold these really inaccurate and simplistic notions of, of male and female desire. Um, and the irony for me was that I ended up married to a man who kind of went on a very similar trajectory as I did, um, where he was focused on what do women want? How can I not be this, the stereotypical, stereotypical <clears throat> jackhammering brute was what he once said to me. And so he was like, 
you know, he read like um, the whole lesbian sex book and she comes first. And like, you know, he studied up and sort of did the the he was on his own sort of parallel track of trying to understand female desire. And both of us um, brought a lot of misconceptions <laughs> to our journeys and then happened to, you know, sort of meet and um so there was something kind of poetic in the ways that we'd really um, sort of studied up to be what the opposite sex wanted. Um, but um, what I found in him was that he didn't like none of the those simplistic notions of male sexuality applied to him. And so like all of the studying that I'd done, <laughs> like went out the window, basically. It did not apply. Mm, interesting. There was a moment when you, you mentioned it earlier where you find your dad's porn and, um, you know, you had a, a bit of a, a crisis. You were a little disappointed that he was um, attracted to the women that you saw on those websites or whatever. And I, I felt at that moment like... <laughs> As a man, I, I, I wanted to like reach through the book and say to you at 15 or whatever you were like, like, there's no reason to be disappointed in your dad. Like your dad does believe what he said to you that beauty is internal and intelligence is the most beautiful thing and kindness and like he believes those things. But he also yeah. like, you know, a blonde in high heels with big tits is hot, too. Like there's no conflict mm -hmm. there. And I understood right. how the, the little girl was like, ah, he was lying all the time. And I just yeah. I just wanted to, you know, sort of say it's not that simple. You know, obviously, that was your point. Um, yeah. But I, I do feel like culturally this this inability to um, to appreciate nuance in sexual yeah. appetite is yeah. just pernicious and, and corrosive. Yeah. I agree so much. I mean, I think like cultural illiteracy around fantasy to me is like that, that it's huge. It's huge yeah. because that's why in that moment I was so unprepared to be able to hold that. But like all of those messages, those feminist, you know, messages around what he valued in women, that was all true. It was also true that he subscribed to perfect10.com, you know, mm. and, um, you know, it took me a, a while to begin to sort of incorporate those. But it, and I think that part of how I began to incorporate it was that I in, you know, under the guise of trying to figure out straight male desire, you know, went looking at looked at porn and, you know, poked around on tube sites and in the process discovered my own relationship to fantasy. And that's where it just the whole thing cracked open for me because it was like, oh, I have this capacity to be contradictory, you know, in terms of my beliefs and my fantasies. And and that was what really introduced me to to just what fantasy can mean and how we can ha we can have those tensions within ourselves. Um, and um, but it was really like, you know, I, I kind of had to to 
it's not that I didn't want to figure out straight male desire. I think there was a very, like that was an earnest pursuit, but I also think it functioned as a cover story that allowed me to pursue my own desires. You know, it was like, Oh, I'm not, you know, it's not, I'm not a pervert. I'm not looking at porn for my own interests. I'm just looking at it to figure men out. But, you know, in the process faced (laughs) the reality of my own interests there. And, um, that was educational, but you know, I had to like educate myself in terms of, um, the nuances of fantasy. That was certainly not anything that was ever discussed in school. Mm, sex sure. <laughs> Never touched <laughs> Would on. you love to teach that Even class? Remotely. Wow. Oh, I mean, can you imagine if they would actually allow that to happen? Yeah. That would be, oh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so needed, but you know, I, I, when I was writing sex at dawn, I, I realized something about myself, uh, came to understand something about myself, which is that um, I've always found uh, desire and sexuality to be intellectually really, really interesting. And I also find um, ideas to be erotically stimulating. Mm -hmm. I get off, literally get off on a really interesting idea or a really smart Mm. person or a really well-written paragraph or an insight, like an insight makes my dick hard. It's a weird, (laughs) I don't know if it's a short circuit or what it is. That's, that's a cool, that's a cool sort of (laughs) talent, I suppose. (laughs) Well, I suspect you share it. I mean, not the dick part, but you're right. I feel like reading you and knowing you a little bit, like you experience sex intellectually. And I imagine you experience intellect erotically as well. Yeah. 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 Absolutely. I mean, I think there there is a, a charge there that's kind of hard to explain. And I think, oh, who is it that was that wrote really beautifully about just the way that, um, uh, was it Audre Lorde, about the, the ways that the erotic sort of, um, you know, seeps into all, like all areas of our life, right? And that you can have that kind of, that there can be an erotic aspect to, you know, um, intellectual pursuits to your work, um, in this way that is hard to describe and really pin down, but, um, you know, just, it's just that, that excitement and that feeling of desire and that, you know, there is just arousal that, you know, in the broadest sense of the term, um, like that spark is definitely there when talking intellectually, about sex as well as you know any other topic well there's 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 revelation right there's there's nakedness there's Mm -hmm. uh you know risking rejection there's so many commonalities yeah yeah have you ever thought of yourself i I know you've interviewed a lot of sex workers there are scenes where you're on this porn site and you know your column at salon you were you know doing all sorts of stuff, reviewing sex toys and, you know, you're doing all that stuff. Have you ever thought of yourself as a sex worker? No, I haven't. Um, Someone who reads this book will know more about you and your 
eroticism than someone who mm -hmm. watches a porn star having sex. It's certainly, yeah, it's way more revealing. Yeah, it's way more revealing because it's, I'm, I'm not revealing my, you know, sort of body in performance. I'm revealing my self. Yeah, <laughs> like, that's what I mean. <laughs> which is, I mean, it's just, that is, yeah. Um, it is incredibly revealing. Yeah, it is incredibly revealing. Um, and it's certainly not done with, you know, it's not done with the intent of arousal. Um, you know, it's, I think it's in fact like pretty unarousing. <laughs> like I think it's um, in a lot of ways, it's a very unsexy sex book, you mm. know? Um, <laughs> but, um, I mean, yeah, certainly in terms of sex work, like I, and I talk a bit about this in the book, like I, um, you know, I don't, while my name is, is attached to the articles that I've written forevermore on the internet, um, I, I don't suffer any, you know, not even a fraction of the stigma that's attached to sex work. Um, so no, you know, I don't think that I, um, no. Yeah. I, when I said that, what I, I was thinking of the scene where you're in a strip club and getting a lap dance. Mm -hmm. And I was thinking about, you know, I've had lots of porn stars on this podcast and I, I, I was thinking, you know, like Angela White, for example, I, I had on the podcast, she's huge, you know, number one porn star in the world probably right now. Yeah. And she's yeah. super, super smart. I don't know if you've ever met her. Yeah. Like she has a master. Yeah, no, I have. Yeah. In sexology. Yeah, she's fascinating. Yeah, I, I think she's yeah. awesome. And I was just thinking like, you know, how reading your book is like, I know more about your sexuality than I know about hers, even though I've seen her like in gangbangs and right. you know, all sorts of stuff. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I don't mean, I, I wasn't, you know, I, I didn't mean to diminish uh, the stigma attached to, to that work and the courage that those people have. Yeah. But there's something like, I can imagine her saying, Oh my God, it's no problem for me to like be in a, you know, 10 on one gangbang on camera, but I could never write the kind of book that Tracy yeah. Clark Flory wrote. You know, I could never be yeah. that revealing. It, it right. And, and yeah. I think a, a fair bit of her motivation for what she does is um, destigmatizing it and, you know, taking away uh, the shame to some extent. Yeah. What yeah. what was now it's confusing a little bit because I wanted to ask you why you wrote this book. Mm -hmm. And I'm anticipating, well, I wanted to help young girls not get hung up the way I did and so on. But but then you told the story that you didn't actually set out to write this book. Um yeah. right. so how does the, did you ever consider not putting your name on it? Using it writing under mm -hmm. a pseudonym? No, I mean, I don't, cause I don't, I mean, one, even just practically, like, I don't know that, I don't know that my publisher would have published it, you know, mm. like, I think there's a lot to be said for how, like that you have a name behind it because yeah. Um, but I mean, why did I want to write it? I think, 
it's really hard to put to words. You know, I, I obviously I did have this initial other idea that was more journalistic and I felt this need and this hunger to write it. And I think in a lot of ways I was still trying to sort some stuff out. Like there was a story that I needed to tell and I was trying to figure out what that story was. And I just felt the, the pull to the page to start doing that. Um, and it was in that process that I, you know, turned to memoir and of course I could tell you exactly as you've anticipated, like why I wanted to write the book to help young women and all of that, which is all very true in terms of like what I came up with as I was writing it and the sort of meaning that arose for me, um, as the project shifted, but like on a deeper level, there was like a much more personal and probably just, you know, selfish in that, like I had my own, like I had my own desire to, to write the story down and to, and to figure out like, what was the arc? What was the story that I was really trying, trying to, to tell? Um, and so, but a lot of the other sort of explanations definitely do come after the fact, but there is this like much harder to pin down, um, uh, <laughs> hunger, right? You know, I don't even know how to describe it that, that, um, you know, I don't know it. Yeah. I mean, it, 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 it's a lot easier to say, I want to help young women. And, you know, I wish I had had a book like this when I was in my early twenties and all of that is true. Um, but I don't think that that's what made me write yeah. it. Yeah, I know what you mean. And also, like, let it be said that I think this book is also incredibly uh, helpful for young men. Uh, I mean, I, yes, I hope, I'm glad, I'm glad you've said that because my hope all along was like, this would not just be a book that young women read. Yeah. Like, I never wanted to write a book just for young women. Well, young men I are trying to figure reading. out women, like what's going on in there. Yeah. Uh, it's hard yeah. to, to figure out sometimes. And so to have a woman, I, I have um, two very close friends uh, who do a podcast together called Whore Rapport. Um, they have a rapport, right? And they're sort of like, <laughs> and their whole thing is like, look, we're two, they're a little, they're your age roughly. And they're like, look, okay. The, the purpose of this is two women talking very openly about sex, about every aspect of our desire, our experiences, our shame, our fear, our regrets, everything for women, but also for men. Because, you know, like that's that's what we want. That's, you know, at least the smart yeah. men want to know what are you really feeling? Right. Getting right. back to the question of male desire. Um. Because both of these women have told me that when they, in their sexual fantasies, they often are experiencing the fantasy from the man's perspective. So even mm. when they're having sex, they're imagining what it's like to fuck them. Uh -huh. You know what I mean? Right. Which, right. which makes me wonder if we're not getting caught up in a linguistic thicket when we call it male desire maybe what we're talking about is desire mm -hmm. just that kind of animal hunger which we yeah. which we attribute to men but in my experience women feel a hell of a lot of that too 
Sometimes right. they frame it as they're projecting themselves into the male experience. Yeah. But aren't yeah. we just talking right. about hunger? Right. I mean, I do, I do think like we don't have a lot of um, models of that kind of of women, women's hungry desire, yeah. um, you know, especially in this sort of the realm of like, um, you know, being a, a sexual spectator and like, you know, uh, you know, objectifying men, if you will, like there are very few models of that, you know, and I but I just anecdotally from my own experience think that women are perfectly capable of that and that there's you know no shortage of of sort of um capacity there but i do think that um you know i think that well for one i think that women are um from a very young age encouraged to tamp down their sexuality to even um channel their desire into being desired, mm. you know, there are all these forces that really, um, that facilitate that, that sort of subversion of desire, which is not to say that women don't, you know, authentically and genuinely take satisfaction from being desired, but that so often like the fullness of one's desire is channeled into this very narrow, um, aspect of, of being desired, of, of, of making oneself desirable. And so that it's, um, I think that's like the most easily accessible route to sexual expression oftentimes for women is that, um, you know, being desired and, you know, seeing oneself through the male gaze and all of that, like, um, is so readily accessible. Um, but, but it, everyone has that experience of, of, I think of, um, satisfaction around being desired, of course, like, and, and being on the other end of that kind of hungry animal desire. Yeah. And it's interesting though, to, to think about, you know, if we only have a model of that kind of hungry animal desire coming from men, then like, you know, must women then sort of, you know, as, as your friends express, like, must they then, um, experience that through the man's eyes rather than from through their own eyes, right. you know? Right. And, and, and I wonder to what extent that inhibits, um, orgasm in, in a lot of women because the, because yeah. orgasm is a surrender to that animal, you know, physiological right. reaction to something. And, and right. if you're feeling like, no, no, that's not my realm, that's his realm, yeah. then, you know, like, oh, I get my pleasure when he comes. Like, well, yeah. you know, then, then there's right. a, which is why, like, fake orgasms are so offensive because, mm -hmm. you know, from the man's perspective, ideally, at least, you know, just as a woman is getting off on being desired, the man is getting off on having you know, provided this experience to the woman, it kind of yeah. closes the circuit, right? You know, yeah. like I really wanted to fuck you and then you really enjoyed it. And you know, right. now everything's complete, all the boxes are checked. And so there's right. this, this weird betrayal of um, yeah. faking it. You know, it's, it's like if, <laughs> yeah. you know, if the guy was like, well, I, actually, I wasn't really attracted to you. I just wanted to fuck you because I was bored. It's like, it's that yeah. kind of like, wait a minute. I, yeah, it's interesting. When, well, sorry, that, go I, ahead. Go ahead. 
No, I was going to say, like, I mean, in terms of talking about the parts of the book that I have shame about, like, admitting to faking orgasms, like, you know, epically and routinely through my 20s, that's one of those moments of shame because there is that, there's just the aspect of betrayal and lying, you know, that is, um, it's incredibly embarrassing to, to reveal that. And, and I do think that faking orgasms, at least in my case, it was about staying in control. Mm -hmm. You know, it was about very much about not being comfortable with surrender and about really being in control of the perception of the sexual event right. and how it was going and sort of managing managing the scene of it. Very performative, <laughs> you know, yeah. and, you yeah. know, and, and I, I understand that that uh, there's a like a desire to please that underlies all that, but it backfires as so often yeah. does. I wanted to just read yeah. the the epigraph to your book real real quickly and talk about that a little bit. I was really struck by it. It's uh, a quote from Miranda July. Is that Julie? July, I guess? July, yeah. Um, she says, I'm always interested to hear how a woman conceives of herself as a sexual person because there is really no map for this, only a series of contradictory and shaming warnings. So whatever any of us comes up with is going to be wholly unique and perhaps a little monstrous, like a creature that has survived multiple attacks, yet still walks, still desires. It's really, there's a lot in there. I love that. Yeah, there's so much <laughs> in there. There's a lot in there, yeah. I mean, the, the word, you know, conceives, first of all, I'm sure that's intentionally chosen. Really interesting how you, you know, you essentially give birth to yourself in a way, right? Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. And there's no map for this, only a series of contradictory and shaming warnings. It's so true. You know, I, I often yeah. say if, yeah. if we taught kids about driving the way we teach them about sex we would give them the keys say go figure it out don't wreck the car and i don't want to hear about it like yeah. how's that going to work out yeah you know yeah um and the word monstrous is interesting too because i think that resonates with what we we're saying about the animalistic Hugely. you know yeah. nature of things um, yeah, it's it's really interesting. And, and reading that, I, I thought like that's so true for women. And I wonder to what extent it's true for men. Um, and and also mm -hmm. generationally, I feel like there's so much more shame around male sexuality now in American society than there was when I was a kid. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I think that this lack of a map is uh, a, an acute problem for young men as well. You know, when I was a yeah. kid, it was like Hugh Hefner, Warren Beatty, Jack Nicholson. Like there was this kind of like, you know, cool, yeah, he's a womanizer, but he loves women. You know, like the whole thing about uh -huh. Warren Beatty uh -huh. was like, yeah, he's fucked everybody, but he loved all of them, right? Uh -huh. uh, and they all love him and no one's got a bad thing to say about him, you know, like, um, that was kind of my, when I grew up, like you love women by loving women. Uh, and now mm -hmm. I feel like it's much more complicated, um, you know, with the, 
the sort of uh, shame around male desire, the sort of like all men are rapists thing from, you know, the you mentioned her. Um, what's her name? Woman hating Andrea Dworkin and Catherine uh-huh. McKinnon. And, you know, that mm-hmm. wave of of sh- man shaming feminism um, that came in when, you know, just as I was sort of leaving college and I guess has become much more prevalent. Um, your book, I guess the, the point I wanted to make is that your book serves as a map for men and women, I think, in a way. You talk, I remember when you and I did the first podcast, um, you're in the first 10 episodes and Neil Strauss is in the first 10 episodes. <laughs> oh, that's great. And, and he came up because he's become a friend of mine over the years, I, I have to admit. <laughs> And I remember awesome. you saying somehow he came up or maybe I saw the book in your apartment because I remember we recorded in your apartment in San Francisco. Yeah, yeah. And I remember you saying like, oh, yeah, you know, like I dated a dude and I saw that yeah. book on his bookshelf. And oh, yeah. and then I read that passage last night where you talk about yeah. the, the salsa dude and, you know, yeah. and how he nagged you and all that shit. <laughs> oh, totally. Oh, yeah. And he had, he had a highlighted and, you know, double underlined <laughs> copy yeah. of, of his book, of, of his book and of um, Mystery's book. Mystery. I did yeah. a thing recently. A lot of people have been, um, had been telling me like, dude, you have to read this book, The Way of the Superior Man. Oh, man. So I actually have been wanting to read that and write about it because I've been noticing that it's it's in Amazon's like top 10 gender studies books, uh-huh. like or top three even for like at, at least I don't know how many years. Now. Right. And it just it's so did you read yeah. it? I you did. did. And what do you think? And I, I did an entire <laughs> podcast about it. Oh, you yeah. did. OK, I'm going to go listen. Yeah. To it. Um, yeah. I mean, the you know, the sort of quick version is the the reason I mention it is is that it it's filling this need and I think uh-huh. I think that you know our society one of the many pathological aspects of our society is that that we really don't offer guidance to young men and women mm-hmm. and how to do this how to how mm-hmm. to be a good man how to be yeah. a, a a woman who's both you know desirable to men but but integrated within herself you know like how do you do that it's sometimes they're yeah. contradictory impulses how do you integrate them you know um and and these books you know the game and and the, you know that whole pickup artist thing like that's trying to teach men how to deal with women it's a very exploitative bullshit approach i think but there's a need yeah. there's a hunger for it i guess there's a market yeah there yeah, is. and so Daniel, the the book is David or Data, Daniel, Data, somebody. Data, yeah, yeah. right. Um, yeah, essentially, there's a lot of it that I like because a lot of it is saying to men like, "Hey, be a man, figure out your shit before you start asking women to be involved in your life." Right. So it's sort of a Jordan mm-hmm. Peterson, clean your room, you know, that message, mm-hmm. um, mm-hmm. which I think is true, and you know, have a a source of meaning in your life that isn't your relationship, right? What is your purpose Mm -hmm. in life? Figure that out. And then women will be attracted to you because you're, Mm -hmm. you've got a good life. You're, you're an integrated, interesting person. So that's great. I, I really agree with that. Yeah. The problem that I found in the book was his depiction of women which I found to be Mm -hmm. extremely insulting and 
Um, you know, basically his thing is like, look, women lie all the time, but they're not really lying because their cognitive process is all about meaning. It's not <laughs> about facts. So when a woman, you know, says she hates you, don't take it seriously. She doesn't really hate you. She's just having a moment and it'll pass. It's a very sort of like patting uh, the little lady on the head kind yeah. of thing. Um, right. You know, and so my thing is like, no, if, if a woman tells me she hates me, either she hates me or she's so unstable, I don't want to be around her. Right. Because if I'm right. I don't want to be in a relationship with someone who hates me, you know, or says they do. No. Um, yeah. So it's a very like. Oh, women are are children, and you just sort of have to, you know, make allowances for their hormones and their their silliness. Right. So. Right. Um, yeah, I don't know why the fuck I'm talking about that. No, well, yeah, I mean it. That you know, it relates to the pickup artist books, and that I think there's a similar sort of approach to um, to to women or an attitude towards women. Right. You know? That they're targets, um, or yeah. They're, yeah, and that they're like these simple creatures that, you know, if you just learn XYZ trick, like you can, yeah. you know, it just, um, but they're, but they are obviously like these best selling books, like massively popular, are speaking to a, a desire. And I don't know that they're not, I don't think that they're satisfying it in a healthy way, but like the desire is there. That yeah. need is there. And when you're feeling totally lost, even a bad map feels helpful, you know? Yeah. I, I think that's the problem. Yeah. And and if you're that lost, you don't know it's a bad map, right? You don't yeah. you don't realize it. So Well, honestly, yeah, when I think about the guy who the lawyer who the salsa dancing lawyer who picked me up while using um the game, you know, I don't think he was or is a bad guy and i think he was pretty lost and looking for rules and that there was insecurity there and that he you know clung to those rules and i can empathize with that totally i you know i i um i see all of the ways in which i was doing a similar version of that right, right. like i was like you know in that period of my life i was like oh pick up artists like i hate them all these guys coming up to me and using lines that i recognize from the game like give me a break <laughs> but um there was a way in which I was doing the flip of that with mm -hmm. men in that I was, I was also trying to sort of be maintain control that I was looking at men as in some ways the enemy, you know, like that there was this divide and that they were this other species. And like, you know, so there, there was, um, plenty of myself that if I was being honest, that I could see in pickup artists and the men who are attracted to them, you know, that, that, um, we were not so different, really. Yeah, yeah. We're all just lost, and when we're lost, we we can get cruel without without yeah. knowing it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Speaking of the the salsa dancing lawyer with the black Mercedes uh, SUV, <laughs> <laughs> you're again. I know I've blown a lot of smoke up your ass, but you're the way you tell stories is so I can just. See it. It's so the shirt open halfway down. You know, it's this. I mean, yeah. he's just so visually there. You know, uh, uh, yeah. it's really man. I can't. I can't recommend this book too much to people. It's. It's. Oh, I mean, it's. It's, it's, so it's so enlightening, and it's also really enjoyable. 
you know, to read. It's fun to read and it's really insightful. Have you heard from any of these guys, any of these exes? <laughs> um, <laughs> let's see. So many of the, so I reached out to several men ahead of the publication and was just like, you know, FYI, heads up. And most of them were, you know, I mean, I've, I've kept them anonymous and, and most were like, cool, great. Like, thanks for letting me know. Like very friendly. I've I had one ex who, um, was not as happy with it. Um, but I haven't had any, uh, there hasn't been any kind of big conflict Good. or backlash Good. yet crossing my fingers. When did the book come out? It's only been out for, it's, uh, it came out February 16th. Okay. So, so very briefly. Yeah. 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 We'll see how it goes. <laughs> Listen, uh, I, I promised you we wouldn't go much over an hour and I know you have a lot going on. Uh, thank you. Thank you for doing this and thank you for writing this book. I think it's going to help a lot of people. Mm, thank you so much. This was a really fun conversation. Yeah. So go out and buy it. It's called Want Me. And I was thinking it's, you know, as I, I was saying earlier that it doesn't, it's not written out of ego. And so many memoirs should be called Look at Me, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and, and this one is just so fucking honest. It's, it's fantastic. Thank you very much. Thank you so much. Okay, Mom, uh, tell people what they can order from the garage. Okay, in our cottage garage, we have lots and lots of T-shirts. Sex at Dawn, Civilized to Death, Vanthropology, Tangentially Speaking, Paleo Modern, and Talking Out of My Ass. <laughs> she didn't like saying that last one. Then we now have some new things added. We've got beer cozies or koozies or whatever they're called. Oh, civilized to death. Design. They're all civilized That's right. to death. We have stickers and car decals, right? Yes. Okay. There you have it. That's Julie, my mom. He said, baby, what's a big deal? Feel what you want to feel. Say what you want to say. You're going to die one day. For example, I could kiss you just because I want to. What's the difference if you turn away? I'm gonna die one day. Why do you waste your time thinking about your reputation? Trying to meet an expectation, wondering what they're gonna say. Say, when everyone we've ever known. 
to the ground. 